Well, if you'd please turn your attention with me to John chapter 12. We'll be looking at, really, at one verse there in John 12, verse uh, 32. John 12, 32 is our text this evening, a brief uh, meditation on the cross. So I'll read our text, pray for God's blessing on our time. I'll start actually in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. God, give us open eyes to see your son and his glory in these words. Prepare us for the table to see the wonders of the cross as he's lifted up for us. In his name we pray. Amen. In this context, Jesus is closing his public ministry, which goes through John chapter 12, before moving to the cross by way of his private ministry, which is in chapters 13 to 17, what we've heard Greg preach through fairly recently called the mission discourse or the upper room discourse. This is Jesus' last words to the public before the cross. And he's describing a coming climactic moment, one in which, as we see in verse 31, the world will be judged as its ruler, which is his way of saying Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And he describes this moment as one in verse 32 in which he'll be lifted up from the earth. And so in, in doing so, he'll draw all people to himself. Now, what is that event? What are we hearing about when he says he'll be lifted up? Well, John decodes it. John explains it very helpfully to us in verse 33. Uh, the, narr the narrator says, he said this to show by what kind of death he is going to die. Now, for those who have read the Gospel of John up to this point, uh, interpreting this, this, this reference to lifting up as Jesus' death is no mystery. It should actually be transparent at this point because if you read back in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, he describes his coming death as the antitype, the thing to which this old covenant thing pointed. You may recall back in the wilderness with Moses in Numbers 21.9, there was this event in which um, Moses put a bronze snake up on a pole so that those who looked at it would be spared from divine wrath against their sins. So Jesus said there to Nicodemus in John 3.14 and 15, and, Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's, he's using this picture of what happened in the Old Testament as uh, a, a picture of his own being lifted up so that those could look to him by faith and have eternal life. So here's what Jesus is saying. The coming hour in which he's lifted up to the cross will be a moment that draws others to him. And I want to spend the rest of our time exploring some reasons why this is true, why the lifting up of Jesus on the cross draws us to him. It's a way of preparing our hearts, of course, for the table that he's given us to observe his death for us, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So we have four ways we'll look at in which the lifting up of Jesus on the cross draws us to him. The first, and this is kind of referring back to that Numbers 21.9, the, the, the serpent on the pole, by being lifted up, Jesus shows that salvation comes from outside ourselves. By being lifted up, Jesus shows that salvation comes from outside 
ourselves. And once again, think of this vivid picture of what happened in the wilderness. Uh, The sin and rebellion that caused this whole problem to to come up came from God's people. They were grumbling and and uh, rebelling against the Lord. The wrath came from God against that sin. And the only rescue, the only way to be saved was by God's appointment through a mediator, Moses, a man that represented God. And the call of salvation, he said, put that serpent, that bronze serpent up on a pole. And the call of salvation was not to look within. The call of salvation was not to look around at other people. But it was to look up. To look at a provision that God himself had made that's outside of the people themselves. It's above them. In some way it's showing it's greater than them. It's something that they have to raise their eyes in order to see. And the message is, here is the way. Look here and live. And this is exactly what the cross does. It teaches us again and again that none of the power or wisdom or righteousness that saves us comes from ourselves. The cross is very humbling in that way, isn't it? It tells us that all that we contributed, all that we had to to offer to this equation was the sin that made it necessary. And it it tells us a very humbling message that we needed this drastic and, and deeply sacrificial act of rescue from outside of ourselves. We had no other hope. There was no other way. So by being lifted up, the cross shows us that salvation comes from outside of ourselves. Secondly, by being lifted up, Jesus creates a bridge between heaven and earth. By being lifted up, Jesus creates a bridge between heaven and earth. This refers us back to John chapter 1. When he meets a couple of his disciples for the first time, he calls Philip and says, follow me. Philip follows him, and and Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. And he says, you got to, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says, I don't know, he's from, he's from Nazareth. I, I don't know if anything good can come from there. Philip says, no, 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 come and see. And anyway, they have an interaction. Nathan sees Jesus, and he's convinced that this is the Son of God. Nathan says, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And this is what Jesus says to Nathaniel and to all those others who are hearing him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what Jesus is doing there, if you're familiar with the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28, Jesus is portraying himself as Jacob's ladder. You may recall this patriarch Jacob. He's fleeing from the wrath of his brother Esau, and he goes to sleep on a rock, and God gives him a vision, a dream of a ladder. It may be better translated like a ziggurat, like one of the stepwise pyramids they had in the ancient world. He sees one of these, and angels are going up and down on it. And he wakes up, and what does he say? How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Genesis 28, 17. And so when Jesus says, you will see the angels going up and down on, we're expecting Jacob's ladder, he says, the son of man. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the house of God. I am the gate of heaven. And in, in the Gospel of John's architecture of reality, it's very important to understand there's an above realm and a below realm. God's realm, heaven, is the above realm, and, and the earth is the below realm. The, the lower realm is marked by a very unfortunate condition that we've been separated from our maker, we've been plunged into darkness, and we've been put under the rule of Satan. Again, he's called the ruler of this world. 
But then in John, we see that Jesus comes into the world as light so that we who are in the darkness may no longer remain in darkness. So if that's the case, knowing the above world is the heavenly world where God is, the below world is a place not bad in itself, not created bad, but it's plunged into darkness, a bad state. To say Jesus is the bridge, the, the ladder between heaven and earth, is to say he has one foot in the, in the heavenly realm. He's the eternal logos. He's the word. He has one foot in the earthly realm. He's a human being. He is flesh like us. And because of that, because of that unique positioning, he is able to draw us to union with God by faith in him. So against the backdrop of this kind of cosmic geography of heaven and earth, for Jesus to be raised up to the cross means that he's in a position where he most fully can mediate between these two realms. That we see Jesus up there, he's between heaven and earth, so to speak. And it's in looking up to him that we see this is the way we get up to God. Through the cross, he raises up the sons of earth and makes us citizens of heaven. Thirdly, by being lifted up, Jesus shows his glory and attracts our trust. By being lifted up, Jesus shows his glory and attracts our trust. He also spoke of being lifted up in another place in John, in chapter 8, verse 28. He says to his opponents, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, when Jesus says, I am he, it's a little bit more than just uh, someone saying, I'm the guy, I'm him. Uh, against the Old Testament background to say, I am he, is saying, I am the I am, the self-existent God, Yahweh. You'll see that that's who I am. John is famous, the Gospel of John is famous for having several important I am statements where Jesus said, I am the true vine. I am the shepherd of the sheep and so on. These I am statements where he's claiming to be God very clearly against that Old Testament background. And he says, you know what? There's something about when I'm lifted up between heaven and earth. There's something about when I'm put up on that cross that you'll look up there and you will see as you have never seen before that I am. That I am the I am. The cross puts in fullest clarity the full Grace and truth, that fullness of grace and truth that we read about in John 1.14 that shows us that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. He's no mere man. He is a man, but he's also the eternal Word of God. And there's no clearer view, there's no better place to see his loveliness, the God-man, than to look at him there up on the cross with the eyes of faith. Can we trust the one who died for us? Can we love the one who first loved us? Fourthly, by being lifted up, Jesus gathers sheep from all the nations. By being lifted up, Jesus gathers sheep from all the nations. And this refers back to chapter 11, verse 52. Uh, and this ironic prophecy that the high priest Caiaphas makes, he's prophesied better than he knows. It's kind of interesting. We won't get into all of kind of the, the misunderstanding, the layeredness of what he's saying. But this, people, these, this council of leaders is plotting how to destroy Jesus. And he says, this, Caiaphas says, um, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's one of the effects of Jesus' death, gathering a people from all the nations. So when he says, I will draw all people to myself, that's, what, that's an expansion of what he's talking about. The message of the cross is the gospel that's preached to all the nations and has been ever since the great commission that Jesus gave his apostles before he ascended into heaven. This message of the cross draws eyes and hearts of men and women and children from all the nations and has been for 20 centuries now, drawing our faith, drawing our adoration and trust to Christ as he's been lifted up for us. The word of the cross is a word of salvation, that we, though dead in sin, we, though rebels against God and worthy of punishment, we have received grace and mercy, that God put his son on the cross in our place, so that all sinners from all the nations who turn from their evil ways and turn to him in trust and receive with that humble, outstretched hand of faith all his life, all his provision, all his forgiveness, it's all ours in Christ. And we can receive eternal life and joy in the presence of our maker forever. That is the message of the cross for all the nations. And that message draws us to Christ, even as it is drawing our hearts back to him tonight, to the table. So in closing this this meditation, I want to ask you, isn't the Lord's Supper a wonderful place for this teaching to lead us? The Supper reflects the fact that salvation is outside of ourselves. Because it shows us once again that Jesus laid down his life for us. He subjected himself to the pangs of death and divine judgment so that we, who again brought only sin and share an interest in him by faith, we could receive the only possible means of rescue from our sin. The Lord's Supper also reflects the fact that Jesus bridges heaven and earth because he gave his body for us and he spilled his blood for us, bringing all who believe to God through this new and living way that he has made, even through his own body. Christ alone is the only way, the only way that that we who are on earth could be raised up to God in heaven. This is why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The supper also reflects the supreme glory of Jesus that attracts our adoring trust. When he says, I am the I am and the self-existent God, become human flesh in order to redeem sinful flesh and bring us sinners back to God. And in the cross, this glory is singular. There's no higher display of this glory of the I am as what he did in giving his life for us. No one but Jesus could love us like this. No one but Jesus could bring sinful men like us to share in divine glory. And finally, the supper reflects the, the one body of, that Christ's death creates. This is actually, we're going to hear in a moment more about this in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, that part of what the Lord's Supper does is it's vertical. It's, it's showing something about our relationship with God in Christ, but it's also horizontal, showing that we've become one body in Christ. That's what the bread pictures, that men and women among Jews and Gentiles, all the nations draw toward him who lived for us, who died for us, and who was raised again for us. And that's the, the glory and beauty of this ordinance that he's given us. So in view of all that God has done for us in the gospel to reconcile us to himself through the redeeming death of his son in our place, it is our great privilege to take part in the Lord's Supper. Uh, the bread and the cup is an ordinance that Christ has given to his church by which we are to remember the cross where he poured out his life in love to save us. It's a time to soberly reflect on the cost of our salvation and to to be renewed by him, by this gift from him to us, to be renewed in our assurance of every believer's sure hope in him.
We don't measure our assurance and hope by how well we did this last week. We measure our assurance and hope by the finished work of Christ that he did for us, and that's what the supper symbolizes. It's a time of refreshment for our faith as we partake of the bread and the cup in joy. This is a blessing that Christ has instructed us to enjoy in faith, and we hear in in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, that when we share in the bread and the cup, the risen Christ communes with us. We participate with him even as we participate with one another as his body. It says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And for this reason, the table is only for those who are Christians, those who are repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior. Just as baptism expresses the beginning of our union with Christ and with his people, so then the Lord's Supper gives an ongoing display and expression of that union. So the Bible calls us to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. A worthy manner does not mean that we're sinless. We like to say this every time. We would not need the Lord's Supper. We wouldn't need the sacrifice of Christ if we were sinless. It's only for sinners. But worthy means that we're uh, trusting in Jesus Christ in a repentant heart turning to him for all the forgiveness of our sins and striving as a fruit of that faith to live in unity with his church. So in view of God's calling that we partake in a worthy manner, we're to examine ourselves and see that that's indeed the heart in which we're taking it so that we avoid God's judgment on ourselves. So here are some questions to consider as we approach the table. Am I repenting, trusting, and confessing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I expressed this confession through baptism as Christ's commands? Am I devoted to the fellowship of this local church or another that preaches the gospel? And as far as it depends on me, am I doing everything I can to seek peace with others? If not all these are true for you, first of all, we would encourage you to hold off from participating as the bread and the cup come to you. Just let them go. Let them go by you. And then also to come talk to me or another pastor elder. Uh, I'm the only one here tonight, so come talk to me. (laughs) But another time, you can talk to Gary or Greg. Uh, We'd love to walk alongside you and help you work through these things and and better understand your your standing before God. We'd love for you to be able uh, to to have clarity on where you stand with God and to enjoy partaking of the Lord's table as a believer in Christ. So let's all take a moment to examine ourselves before God.